WGNS Murfreesboro, The Good Neighbor Network, FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is a WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now your host, Scott Walker. Time right now, 817. You're listening to WGNS on this Tuesday morning, again today, the 14th of June. And in studio with us, we have Dr. James Payne, and he is part of Ascension Rutherford County's urology program. And your office, I know we'll just start off with your office directly across the street from St. Thomas Rutherford, right? Yes, sir, that's correct. We're about a stone's throw. So tell us, I guess, first of all, I know your specialty is urology, but what are some of the main cases you are seeing these days? Uh, Yes, sir. So yeah, we are the only urology um, practice here in town. Uh, We see a variety of urologic complaints. Uh, Certainly we see a lot of cancer, prostate cancer, kidney cancer. Um, We are living in the kidney stone belt of the country, so we see a lot of kidney stones on a daily basis. Probably the the most common thing that we see. We treat urinary symptoms in both men and women, um, a whole whole variety of other urologic complaints. It seems like kidney stones are something you always hear about. If, If you don't experience them, a friend, a family member does, and always hear how painful they are. Yeah, kidney stones, unfortunately, are extremely common. I think about 10 to 20% of the American population will get a kidney stone at some point in their life. And uh, yes, they can be quite painful. So what causes a kidney stone and is there anything we can do to avoid it? That's a great question, something that we're constantly trying to evaluate. I think for most people, the thought is that dehydration is the most common cause. Thus, when we live in the South here, um, people who work outside specifically um, and are not drinking enough water, lots of uh, fluid losses due to evaporation, things like that, um, we end up being dehydrated. And then that allows for concentration of things like calcium in the urine, which then um, allows for the production of kidney stones. So today, heat index values 111. For those who work outside, are you more common or more? is it more likely that you're going to get one during the summertime if you are prone to them? I think that is the case, yes. So if you are working outside, you are sweating, and you're not drinking enough fluid, specifically water largely, um, you are putting yourself at risk for a kidney stone. So I obviously drink more water. What about things like Gatorade, adding that to the mix? Does that help? Does it make it worse? No, I think I think uh, all that overall is fine. I think water, generally speaking, is best. There is an association with um, some dark carbonated drinks and then sugar-containing fluids that may um, exacerbate kidney stone production. Um, but overall, if you can focus on water, that's probably best. But if you are working outside or doing athletics, you definitely need to replace the electrolytes that you lost as well. Again, Dr. James Payne with us today. What are some of the younger ages where you see kidney stones and you're surprised sometimes? Uh, You can see kidney stones even in the pediatric population. That's much more common with uh, rare genetic syndromes. Um, But, uh, you know, I have seen uh, patients in, you know, ages one and two with kidney stones. It's very challenging to treat those patient populations. That's much more rare. Um, But we often see kidney stones in the in the starting in the teenage population on average. And of course, with teenagers, sometimes it's hard to convince them to drink water. Instead, they're drinking Coke and all those sugary drinks. Of course. Yeah, it's uh, 
a constant challenge. Um, the guidelines typically recommend drinking around three liters of water, around 100 ounces of water a day. So it's actually quite a lot of fluid. Um, so uh, we always recommend patients get some sort of like measured water bottle that allows you to kind of track what you're drinking and you know maintaining constant fluid intake throughout the day. So kidney stones, a big problem in the South and sounds like a bigger problem during the summer, but if you drink plenty of water, plenty of fluids, chances are good, you can hopefully avoid them. That is the hope, yes. <laughs> so in addition to kidney stones, things like urinary tract infections, are, are those things fairly common as well? Uh, at least on, on the men's side of health, are those fairly common or are they uncommon? Uh, much more uncommon in the male population. Uh, for women, we usually consider, believe it or not, around two urinary tract infections per year to be within the normal range. But for men, even one urinary tract infection is considered uncommon. And there's a variety of potential causes for that, including kidney stones, but also uh, men with large prostate issues who aren't emptying their bladder. Um, there's a whole variety of factors why a patient, especially specifically a man, might get a UTI, and they're usually pathologic. It's not considered normal. Okay. And with these urinary tract infections, obviously it sounds like more common among women. Um, are, are they as painful as kidney stones? Uh, I have not had either myself, so I don't know that I can speak to it from it from a personal standpoint, but having treated you know, hundreds and maybe even thousands of patients with uh, each of them, I would say largely kidney stones, I think, are more painful. Uh, urinary tract infections are maybe more uncomfortable, although in a small select patient population, they might be considered painful. Um, kidney stones can often be quite agony invoking. Now, you mentioned prostate problems and large prostates. That That's one of those dreaded tests that men have to have every year. Or they should have every year starting, what, at 40, 50? Well, it depends on the guidelines that you're looking at. The American Urologic Association, which I'm a part of, and you know we typically follow their guidelines here in the U.S., recommends shared decision-making with regards to screening, typically starting at age 55 and, and proceeding through age 69. Uh, there are some other guidelines like the National Can the NCCN guidelines, the National Cancer Network, that recommends considering starting at age 45. So, you know, somewhere between 45 and 55, you should consider starting to screen for prostate cancer. Now, I've read articles that talk about taking in more tomatoes, tomato juice. It, it helps to decrease the problems with the prostate. I have no idea if those things are true, if they're wives' tales. But what are some things you can do that would be good for your prostate so you don't have problems? Well, that is something that is continuing to be researched and looked into. I don't know that we have strong level one clinical evidence that um, any one of those things may necessarily decrease your risk of prostate cancer. Um, there are you know, certain things that we hope may be the case, and the phytochemicals that are found in uh, tomatoes and cruciferous vegetables, things like uh, broccoli, that um, we think or we hope may reduce inflammation, specifically within the prostate, that may reduce your risk of prostate cancer. There was a, a recent study called the MEALS trial that looked at like a high uh, vegetable intake and reducing the likelihood of progression to worsening prostate cancer. And that unfortunately did not show um, strong 
strong evidence that you know a high vegetable diet would decrease the progression to you know worsening prostate cancer. So overall, we don't know um, with strong evidence that any one of those things is the case. We think and we believe that you know an overall healthy lifestyle. So avoiding obesity, treating your diabetes or high blood pressure, regular exercise, maintaining good sleep habits, all of those things are going to um, basically promote a healthy lifestyle, reduce total body inflammation, and make um, your body a hostile environment for cancer to grow. When it comes to things like medicine, I, I know we're a very technologically advanced country, and overall it seems like worldwide, Things have really advanced in medicine for sure, but at the same time, there is still so much to be learned as far as medicine and the human body go. Yeah, medicine is evolving at an exponential rate. Um, it's becoming increasingly challenging uh, to uh, even in you know even if you're a specialist in one field to um, you know maintain that body of knowledge um, and even in urology there are subspecialty fields like urologic oncology and female pelvic medicine and reconstruction uh, we have become very hyper specialized just because of this massive evolving body of evidence it's it's definitely very challenging so uh, in addition to things like urinary tract infections prostate problems and kidney stones what are some of the other more common things that you see each day in rutherford county and maybe these are things you wouldn't see outside the south i don't know uh kidney stones and infections are very common um, we definitely as as we've already talked about do a lot of screening for cancers um, kidney cancer unfortunately fairly common um, prostate cancer in younger men we see things like testicle cancer which is um, the most commonly diagnosed cancer for uh, men in their 20s and 30s um, so we are you know evaluating patients for that um, lots of various uh, types of you know uh, chronic pain issues testicle pain kidney pain um, bladder pain, those types of things that were, you know, those are very challenging things to treat that we see on a day-to-day -day basis for sure. We see a lot of benign conditions, like we've already talked about some of the infections, but there's some benign um, uh, swelling on the, like the testicles that can occur, something called a hydrocele or spermatocele. We do some reconstructive surgery, patients who have congenital blockages of their kidney that need to be repaired or um, unusual bladder outpouchings that need to be resected. There's a, a litany of things that we treat. Again, with us in studio this morning, Ascision Rutherford's urologist, Dr. James Payne. And if anybody has any questions for him, you can text us those questions at 615-893-1450. Now, this first text, it, it deals with a problem that we do have in the South, and that is ticks. And this person said that I recently, or my son found a tick uh, in his pants. We'll just leave it at that. But it, that is a problem. I, I mean, ticks are huge in the South, and obviously they like to find warm places on the body, I guess. Yeah, that that's definitely, you know, a possibility, um, especially in younger children who may not be meticulously cleaning themselves. They may be of an age where mom and dad are no longer assisting, but maybe not quite to an age where they're as meticulous about how they're managing their uh, overall hygiene. So being aware of those things, looking for those things, um, especially in kind of like, uh, you know, uh, more hairy areas of the body can be challenging, but should be something that's done for and sure. It says they remove the tick, but is there anything they should look for or worry about? Uh, I mean, signs of systemic illness, um, things like Lyme disease, rashes, um, fevers, 
uh, muscle aches, body aches. Um, those would be things to monitor for. Those are rare, but you know, are a potential side effect of having a tick bite. Not generally something that a urologist treats. That would maybe be something more like your primary care doctor or uh, like a rheumatologist may treat, um, but something to be aware of. And the next question here, again, you can text us at 615-893-1450. Deals with the prostate. It says, I'm 40 years old, and my doctor recommended I do a prostate exam at this point every year, but I'm not sure why, and has it gotten less painful, or is there any other route I can go? So prostate exams, not the most fun thing for patients. They're not generally looking forward to that aspect (laughs) of seeing their urologist or primary care doctor. Uh, The role of a rectal exam, a digital rectal exam at age 40, I would say would be a little bit questionable. Again, the guidelines generally would recommend screening maybe around the age of 45. If you have a strong family history of prostate cancer, dad, brothers, uncles, and there's some concern for like a genetic syndrome, that may be an indication to start screening at 40. That would be a discussion you should have with your primary care doctor or your urologist. Um, but uh, a PSA test would probably be where I would start for a 40 or a 45 year old man. And um, you know, the, the studies show that an average PSA for a man in their 40s is around 0.6 to 0.7. Um, if that is where the patient's at or less than that, you know, the, the guidelines would suggest they could wait two to four, maybe even five years before repeating a PSA. Um, so I would start with a PSA at age 40 to 45 and then consider Um, a rectal exam only in very rare circumstances. So what is that PSA test showing you? So the PSA is uh, stands for prostate specific antigen. It's a protein that's made exclusively by the prostate. There's a whole variety of reasons why a patient would have an elevated prostate a PSA level, um, cancer being one of them, um, but inflammation, infection, recent trauma, any one of those things may cause the PSA to go up. So you should never look at any one PSA in isolation. Usually we're looking at serial PSAs. What is the PSA doing over time? graphing that out, trending it, and then making a decision based upon that. What we know about prostate cancer is that it essentially disrupts the architecture of the prostate cells and allows for more PSA to, to get out into the bloodstream. And so if, uh, if you're drawing a blood test and you find the PSA is very elevated, there is a chance, although again, other things may cause it, there's a chance that um, you may have underlying prostate cancer. Now, over the years, the way prostate cancer is treated has changed, I know, quite a bit. Uh, what, what are doctors usually recommending and doing about prostate cancer today in patients? That's a very uh, complex question. It depends on a variety of factors. But in general, once you have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, the next step should be risk stratification. So you should be having a conversation with your surgeon, your urologist, about where you fall on that uh, that spectrum. So if you are low risk, believe it or not, for most patients, intervention, surgery, radiation is not recommended. We typically surveil those patients. Those are sometimes the most challenging conversations to have because if, if a patient hears they have cancer, and they, uh, they are thinking that they need treatment. But um, believe it or not, a, v- a vast majority of patients will have low-risk cancer and should be surveilled 
but not treated. Once you get intermediate or more high-risk disease, then you're having conversations about generally two different forms of treatment, surgery and radiation. As a urologist, we're the surgeons. We are the ones typically performing the surgery, and then we have discussions about radiation and or refer them to our radiation oncology uh, partners. The aftermath of having that prostate surgery, if you do go through cancer, it can, I guess, be life-changing in a lot of ways for a man. Absolutely. Uh, the treatment for prostate cancer, whether it be surgery or radiation, has complications and really more what I would call side effects. Complications are things that maybe you wouldn't expect following treatment, and then side effects are things that you expect and then you plan to manage afterwards. Surgery and radiation both have their own kind of subset of those things. From a surgical standpoint, probably the two main things that we run into are urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction following surgery. Hey, erectile dysfunction, that, that's something we hear more and more of through TV and radio commercials. It's almost like, you know, you start hearing TV and radio commercials for whatever ailment it may be. The next thing you know, everybody in the world has whatever that ailment is. Uh, but erectile dysfunction, how heavily hit is the population by that? How heavily hit is the male population by that? Uh, depends on the study that you're looking at, but generally speaking, probably 30 to 50% of men over the age of 50 will have some degree of erectile dysfunction. Um, that's generally diagnosed on some sort of questionnaire where a, a patient is, you know, asked a, a series of questions and, and then they are, you know, defined as having erectile dysfunction. It is also prevalent in younger men, um, but the causes generally are different. Well, what are some of the causes of that? Overall, the vast majority of men with erectile dysfunction uh, are have that in relation to some sort of underlying cardiovascular disease. So blood pressure issues, cholesterol issues, diabetes. Around 50 to 80% of men with, you know, with diabetes will have some degree of erectile dysfunction. So all of, all of these um, cardiovascular risk factors we know damage the blood vessels as well as uh, diabetes can damage the nerves that allow us as men to get erections. And it's extremely challenging to treat in those situations. Again, Dr. James Payne is with us this morning. Now, can other things like stress, anxiety, depression, can those also lead to male health problems when it comes to the urology department? Uh, definitely, absolutely. Um, so stress, specifically speaking about erectile dysfunction, stress causes um, you know the production of stress hormones, um, anxiety, things like that. We know those things kill erections. It kind of goes back to things like uh, the fight or flight mechanism. So if you are in, you know, if you're running from a bear, generally speaking, having an erection is not something that's going to help you. I wouldn't think so. So. <laughs> If you are in a stressful situation, the body tends to shut down that system. So if you have high anxiety, high stress, the body is actively fighting against your erection mechanism. So treating those things can sometimes fix the erectile dysfunction in a certain population. Now this next text, it says, I take rose petal baths. Uh, will this increase my risk of bladder infections? What, what, I've never even heard of taking rose petal baths. Uh, I guess uh, I don't know of any rose petal bats <laughs> causing um, erectile dysfunction. No, I, I'm not aware of that in any sort of study. And it's asking about bladder infections with rose petal bats. Is that something 
if uh, there may be, you know, specifically in women, if you are taking prolonged baths, that may put you at risk for a urinary tract infection, just exposing the urethra to, um, you know, bacteria that may live in the water. That is potentially a possibility, but I would suggest that's probably rare. You know, when you bring up bacteria in the water, it, it's summertime, people going swimming in lakes, in the ocean. Does that put you at an increased risk of having... Uh, you know, urinary tract infections or other types of infections? Uh, overall, I would think not. No, I, I don't think um, patients, you know, who are uh, swimming for recreational activities on, you know, a weekly basis, it's unlikely that that would be the case. Again, Dr. James Payne in studio with us. If you have any questions for him or any uh remarks or anything that you'd like to ask just text us 615-893-1450 time right now 836 we're going to take a short break and then we will be right back again dr james payne with Ascision rutherford's urology department and his office located directly across the street from uh, st thomas rutherford on medical center parkway we'll be right back and we'll take a look at the weather forecast as well during this break a heat advisory will go into effect here late this morning. Mostly sunny skies this afternoon, a high in the upper 90s. Tonight, mostly clear, low near 75. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 77. Come by our store, Music World and Drummer's Den. We're a full line music instrument store with well over 5,000 square feet packed with great instruments in every category. In guitars, we're your local dealer for the two top acoustic guitar brands in the world, Martin and Taylor. We've got the best selection and prices anywhere in the state of Tennessee on these. This is Dave Kivanemi at Music World and Drummer's Den in Murfreesboro, 2762 South Church Street, across from Indian Hills Golf Course. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, and Alexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Good morning. Still some traffic volume, but it's moving on 24 out through the Hickory Hollow area as you head towards Nashville. Some radar out here in parts of Franklin as you head towards Franklin, Williamson County. Again, allow yourself extra time. Gatlinburg Wine Cellar, home of the world famous cotton candy wine. Log on to GatlinburgWineCellar.com. I'm Commander Chuck with your on-time traffic. If you're looking for an authentic relationship with financial experts who genuinely care about your unique needs, Capstar Bank is for you. Capstar Bank is dedicated to the people of this community. Capstar Bank wants to help you reach your financial goals. Because at Capstar Bank, you matter to us. Capstar Bank, 2230 Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. CapstarBank.com. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. CBS News Brief. All eyes are on the markets a day after they plunged into bear territory amid growing fears of inflation and possible recession. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. I think there was this fear that, in fact, higher prices and rising interest rates 
are going to keep eating into corporate profits and the consumers are not going to be able to maintain their current level of spending. The Fed expected to announce another interest rate hike tomorrow. Dow futures up 25. Excessive heat warnings and watches posted through parts of the Gulf Coast to the Great Lakes and east to the Carolinas. This window washer in Tennessee has wise advice. You have to be very cautious. Don't let your body lean against the glass because it'll burn you. Entrances closed at Yellowstone National Park. Visitors have been evacuated. Oh, my God. There's that big rock. Heavy rain has washed out roads and at least one bridge and triggered rock slides. CBS News Brief. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. Fortify your lawn with Scott's Turf Builder Lawn Food from Haynes True Bay Hardware. This is Rich Smith with more savings from Haynes True Bay Hardware. 5,000 square feet of coverage is only $17.99 after a $2 instant rebate. Or 15,000 square feet of coverage is only $42.99 after a $6 instant rebate for True Value Rewards members. Pick up these bargains a month at Haynes True Bay Hardware while supplies last and keep your lawn healthy this season. Pick up this bargain a month today at Haynes True Bay Hardware, 1807 Memorial Boulevard. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Time right now, 840. You're listening to WGNS again on this Tuesday morning, today the 14th of June. And in studio with us, we have Dr. James Payne with Assision Rutherford County's Urology Department. I keep saying with their Urology Department, but you've got your own standalone office across the street from St. Thomas Rutherford. Yes, sir. We're, we're, the, uh, we're Middle Tennessee Urology. We're the only urology department um, in town, but we are affiliated with and work out of um, pretty much exclusively Ascension T- St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital. So the larger surgeries that take place, those mm-hmm. would take place, I guess, in the hospital? Yes, sir. Yep. Uh, most of our larger surgeries are robotic cases for prostate cancer, kidney cancer, some of our um, laparoscopic cases, those types of things. Anything involving an overnight stay will definitely play, take place at the hospital there. Now, this next text question, and folks can text us at 615-893-1450, deals with vasectomies. It says, my husband is 40 years old. Seems like everybody's 40 today. Uh, (laughs) It says he's thinking about getting a vasectomy. Is that something that is a smart decision? And can it be reversed if we were to change our mind in the future? But then, you know, 40 plus, it'd be rough having kids at 40 plus. But anyway... Right, right. So that's um, vasectomies are uh, extremely common in our practice. Um, probably myself and my partners do anywhere from three to five each a week, I would think. Um, so it's extremely common for us to do that. I think the average age of a, of a person living in Murfreesboro is around 33 to 35. So pretty common for us to do that. Uh, generally, vasectomies are considered um, overall safer with lower complication rates than um, a female undergoing a tubal ligation procedure. Uh, so we generally encourage patients to consider choosing a vasectomy. There are rare reasons why a patient um, should maybe talk to their wife about having a tubal ligation, but overall, um, men should be really considering a vasectomy. Um, and age 40 is definitely not uncommon. I just did a vasectomy the other day in a, like a 52-year-old. So it's definitely, um, you know, age-independent, an age-independent procedure. As far as vasectomy reversals go, I would say if you are, you know, contemplating 
you know, the, the chance of needing a vasectomy reversal, you should really consider other forms of uh, prevention. Definitely, we can reverse them. We do several of those procedures a year. Reversal rates are not guaranteed, though. So 60 to 80, maybe even up to 90%, depending on how far a person or a patient is out from their original vasectomy. But it's not guaranteed. So if you are thinking that there may be a chance you want children in the future, doing a vasectomy is not generally considered a temporary way of um, prophylaxing against pregnancy. Now, have vasectomies changed over the years? Because it seems like years ago, you would hear about folks who had a vasectomy, but yet they still got their significant other pregnant. Uh, so have they changed over the years? Uh, the They've become much more minimally invasive, generally speaking. I, I, I know some uh, people who have had vasectomies and they have two very large scars on their scrotum from where uh, their vas was ligated. So the testicle produces sperm and then it travels up the vas, which is a kind of a, a thin tube um, that travels from each testicle up to the urethra and that carries sperm. So our job is to basically snip that tube, prevent sperm from getting from the testicle to the urethra. And so the way in which we do that has changed. I generally do it through one very small incision. You know, we call it a no scalpel vasectomy. Um, no scalpel is used. A very small incision is made um, generally right in the middle of the scrotum. It's about a centimeter in size. Um, most patients after a month won't even be able to find where it happened. And we try to pull up those vas through that little incision and then we ligate them. We, we clip them and cut them and prevent an uh, attempt to prevent pregnancy. So the, the pregnancy rate following vasectomy is around one in 2000. So it's very, very low, much lower than any other form of contraception. Um, other than abstinence. And so that, you know, decrease chance of, of getting someone pregnant, your wife pregnant after you have a vasectomy, does it ever change years after you have the vasectomy done? No, you're the the greatest risk of those tubes basically recannulizing, coming back together, occurs within the first six months. Um, so, and really, maybe even in that first ninety days. And so, we generally are getting a semen analysis test about ninety days later after that procedure, and we're looking for sperm within the semen. Um, and as long as there is, you know, generally the test comes back as sperm absent then the patient is considered sterile. And again, that risk remains around one in 2000. I have seen one or two patients um, who have come back with a, with a pregnancy, you know, 10, 15 years later. And again, there is nothing that's zero or 100% in medicine, unfortunately. Um, so there's no 100% guarantee that you will not have a child, but uh, the risk is extremely small. And of course, those who come back 10 or 15 years later, that means it was done 10, 15, 20 years prior. So I, I don't know, is it done the exact same way that they did 20 years ago? The again, the procedure is much more minimally invasive, but overall, the uh, the ligation of the vas is is how it was done. So basically, you know, people there's variation on how it's done. There's actually specific guidelines from the urology world that tells us how to do it. But in general, it's you know cutting the vas, burning it, and potentially clipping it. Um, and some patients or some uh, physicians will uh, excise or remove a very small segment of the vas. I typically do that as well. So is the patient awake and, and alert when this surgery is taking place? Yeah, so it is, it is I believe, the most commonly performed office-based procedure um, from for urologists and um, even some primary care doctors do this. And um, yeah, so generally a patient is awake. Uh, in our office, we often provide patients with a medication to help relax them and sedate them a little 
little bit, but uh, and I have had a few patients sleep through the procedure, um, but most patients are alert and awake. Um, there are select circumstances where we will take a patient to the operating room to do the procedure, but by and large, we're doing it in the office under what's called local anesthesia. So will they, I don't know, take a medicine before they actually show up at the office to undergo the surgery to calm them somewhat? Yeah, so usually we prescribe them some Valium. Um, and they'll take that about an hour to half hour prior to the procedure, um, and they always have a driver, obviously, um, when coming in because of the side effects of that drug. Uh, but the goal is to relax them, to make them more calm during the procedure, but it will not knock them out. And like I said, we, uh, we do have a surgery center where that can be done, but generally the cost is significantly higher as they're, they're paying for the anesthetic as well. Are there any negative sexual side effects that can come of having the surgery done? Uh, generally, no. There's not. There are some patients who have some pain after the procedure. There's rare cases of what's called post-vasectomy pain syndrome, which is uh, a, a chronic pain condition that occurs about 90 days after the procedure. That's rare. The studies show about 1% or less of patients will um, have that. And those are patients with a history of chronic pain, generally speaking, prior to the procedure. So those are, if a patient comes to me and says they have chronic testicle pain, I may be talking to them about having their wife consider a tubal ligation. So now let's go back to some of the other issues we brought up and touched base on in the beginning, such as dealing with kidney stones. Mm -hmm. How do you go, how do you deal with kidney stones? I mean, once, if you have one, I'm sure the chances are greater. You're going to have two, three, four, because I've, I've heard of people having 16, 17 kidney stones, you know, throughout their lifetime. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah. So un unfortunately, like I mentioned before, about 10 to 20 percent of the patient population or the, the American population will get a kidney stone uh, during the course of their life. Um, and once you have a kidney stone, you are at risk for stones in the future. And, and I have seen, unfortunately, several patients, many patients who are chronic stone formers, forming several stones a year. Uh, so uh, there's various ways in which we manage those surgically. Ideally, if a patient can pass it on their own and avoid surgery, that's always best. Um, but that often depends on the size of the stone. And uh, so some patients form larger stones and they're much less likely to pass those on their own. And so then, you know, as a surgeon, our job is to try to uh, treat those stones in uh, essentially as minimally invasive as way as possible. And how do you do that? I, I mean, are you actually going in and removing it, physically removing it? In some instances, yes. Yeah. So a lot of that deter is determined by the size and location of the stone. So for medium size to, you know, maybe smaller, large stones, uh, we can try to shock those stones from the outside. It's often cause called lithotripsy, where we send um, essentially shock waves into the body to break up the stone. Nothing goes inside the patient in most situations, and it breaks the stone up from the outside going in. Um, that's a great procedure um, if you're a candidate for that procedure because it's less invasive, generally less painful. Now, a patient does have to pass those fragments on their, on their own, and the larger the stone, the more likely they are to have issues with fragment passing following. So in select patients, it's generally the ideal way to have it done. If, if I personally would be a, could be a candidate for lithotripsy, I would choose that pretty much almost every day of the week. For patients with larger stones or um, who are not candidates for lithotripsy, we can take small cameras and go inside them. That's called ureteroscopy. 
and we go up and you know find the stone with a small camera, kind of like a colonoscopy, but using a different type of scope. And uh, generally we use a laser that goes through the scope to physically break up the stones. And then in certain cases we can use baskets to try to remove the fragments. For patients with extremely large kidney stones, um, we'll actually go through the back into the kidney. It's called a percutaneous or through the skin procedure where we uh, kind of bore a hole down into the kidney and we use a larger scope with a different type of device that allows us to break up and suck out the stone fragments. That is a procedure that we do here at, at St. Thomas Rutherford. Now, now, a lot of these sound like they would be kind of painful. So are there things that are done um, you know, prior to going in with uh, basically a, a camera to see where everything is? I, I, I mean, what are you doing so that the patient is not hurting more than they should, I guess. So leading up to the surgery, we definitely provide um, analgesia or uh, you know pain medication for patients. Generally, those are narcotic-based, although um, like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like Tylenol, ibuprofen, um, those types of drugs are often extremely helpful. Um, after surgery, uh, medications like Toradol, which is essentially kind of like a, a very powerful ibuprofen-like drug, has been shown to be extremely helpful in dealing with post-operative pain. The vast majority of my patients will get a shot of that before they ever even wake up so that they wake up a little happier. Again with us today, Dr. James Payne talking about a lot of common issues that are seen right here in Rutherford County and I'm sure seen all across the South and far beyond as well. But when it comes to other issues that men face, like going back to the erectile dysfunction, um, one of the questions that we have here deals with testosterone injections. And I guess that would be, well, you hear a lot of commercials for low testosterone these days. Mm -hmm. But how closely related are things like low testosterone and erectile dysfunction? There's a pretty strong correlation in men who have low testosterone. We call that hypogonadism, where their testosterone is essentially below a certain level, and that's generally associated with, with uh, symptoms like low libido, poor sex drive, fatigue, um, you know, some mental cloudiness, and other uh, side effects like erectile dysfunction. And so uh, oftentimes, before we ever even start to prescribe a medication like a Viagra or Cialis, we are... Uh, screening for hypogonadism for low testosterone and generally treating that will uh, hopefully resolve the erectile dysfunction without need for supplemental medications, although sometimes those are needed in tandem. So as that testosterone level comes up, then so should a lot of other things such as uh, your libido increasing, I guess. That is the hope, yes, sir. Now, all of these things are what we call multifactorial, meaning there's not one factor that is usually the, the culprit. There are multiple factors that are usually causing this, but uh, if you focus on one thing, then yes, ideally raising the testosterone. If the patient has a low testosterone, generally considered less than 300 or 300 nanograms per deciliter, then supplementing that, getting that patient back up to a physiologic range of 400 to 600, somewhere in there, can potentially cure their or low libido and erectile dysfunction, yes. So those who are between, let's say, 35 and 45 years mm -hmm. old, what should their testosterone levels usually look like if, if there were you know, a, a target number to hit, what would that be? That's a mixed bag. Uh, I don't know that we know that specifically for any given age population. We know that over time, 
testosterone levels decrease with age. So uh, an average testosterone for a 65-year-old man is not going to be what it is for a 35-year-old man. However, the over 300 but less than 900 are considered within the normal range. So if I saw, if I saw a 35-year-old man who was feeling great, had good erections, and um, good libido and good muscle mass and his testosterone was 350, that would be normal for him. He's not having any symptoms are, it's not all about a number. Symptoms along with the number are when I would consider something pathologic. And there may be some men who have testosterone of 400 who still don't feel great. So it's, it's variable. Hey, and of course there's different, I guess, readings you're looking at. There's what, free testosterone mm -hmm. and then what, what is the difference there? Because you always hear those, you know, your free testosterone level versus your testosterone level. What, what's that difference? The vast majority of testosterone that is circulating in the bloodstream is not freely floating around. It's bound to other proteins because it is what we call a lipid or a fat. So it doesn't dissolve in the serum. It has to be carried around the bloodstream attached to other types of proteins. There is a small amount of that that is considered free, that is actually floating around. The question as to whether the free testosterone versus the total testosterone level, how does that factor in as far as overall symptomatology, that has yet to be fully clearly elucidated. So I don't think we know that. There are some people that kind of look at those levels, but overall within our guidelines, there is no recommendation to specifically look at free testosterone as opposed to total testosterone. And in the field of medical, it always seems like one thing is tied to another, such as you were talking about if somebody's fight or flight feeling, you know, if their anxiety is too high, if there's depression going on. I mean, there's just a lot of issues that are tied to other problems within the body. So what are you often seeing the most of that are common to go hand in hand? We know overall that, um, you know, metabolic syndrome is a, a it has multiple effects throughout the body. So patients who have, you know, as we get older, as Americans, we tend to struggle with things like obesity, um, high blood pressure, cholesterol issues, diabetes issues. And we know that all of those things are related to common neurologic problems. Patients who are diabetics are more likely to get kidney stones. Patients who are diabetics and have that cardiovascular disease are more likely to have erectile dysfunction. There is some evidence that uh, you know patients with metabolic syndrome are more likely to progress to treatment who are on active surveillance for prostate cancer. So maintaining a general healthy lifestyle, low body mass index, regular exercise, avoiding um, you know, issues with blood sugar, blood cholesterol, um, blood pressure will reduce your risk of many urologic maladies. As we close this morning, because we really only have time for one more question, our number again, 615-893-1450. This question deals with the prostate, and the person says that my husband experiences a lot of prostate pain, and he is, or rather, this is common for him, and he's often prescribed medication whenever that pain increases, which I guess means his prostate is likely enlarged at those points, but... Uh, if this is an ongoing problem, and I'm sure it's an ongoing problem for a lot of men out there, the increased prostate size, what are some things somebody can do to kind of relieve that? So uh, prostate size and prostate pain are not always correlated. Prostate, prostate pain 
Um, we call that often chronic prostatitis or CP or chronic pelvic pain syndrome, CPPS. Uh, those are extremely challenging situations to treat. There is some newer evidence that certain extracts of saw palmetto may be helpful in, in those patients. Um, that's a little bit more of a nuanced conversation, but you generally need an evaluation. You should see a urologist. They should check your urine, make sure you don't have um, an infection. You may need a cystoscopy to look for anatomic abnormalities. Men with larger prostates, um, there are various ways in which we can deal with that as well. They often have urinary symptoms, urgency, frequency, weak stream, inability to empty their bladder, pushing, straining. There are some medications that can be helpful for um, relaxing the prostate as well as reducing the prostate size. Those medications can be very effective, but they do come with some side effects. And then some men um, who have severe symptoms progress to surgical management. So there's a whole uh, litany of ways in which we can treat men with large prostates um, from minimally invasive office-based procedures that we can offer to, you know, very um, more invasive uh, robotic procedures to reduce prostate size. And it says in this case, my husband used to take Cipro but that was stopped being prescribed to him years ago, so I, I don't know Cipro, what. Cipro is an antibiotic, um, and so in the absence of an infection, um, I would not prescribe Cipro. Uh, oftentimes when patients see a physician, um, they are prescribed antibiotics even in the absence of infection. You know, it makes doctors and patients feel good that you've walked out of an office with a piece of paper that, you know, you have a treatment. Um, but it's important to diagnose a cause for your symptoms. Um, and, and if you do not have an infection, a specifically a bacterial infection, then antibiotics will not cure your problem. Again, our guest this morning has been Dr. James Payne, local here in Rutherford County. And he does treat patients uh, directly across the street at his office from Ascision St. Thomas Rutherford. And again, you are part of the Ascision Rutherford County, I guess, Rutherford urologist team that helps folks there at St. Thomas. Absolutely. We're, we're happy to be partnered with Ascension St. Thomas Rutherford. It's a great facility. It's been a, a great experience for me working with them. Well, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Time right now, nine o'clock local news with Ron Jordan comes your way next. <music>